we're going to come back together. So I'm going to awkwardly sit back up here on stage. Yesterday I had a little like tickle in my throat. This morning I just woke up feeling just awful. Thus the sign, please do not touch. Um, and yeah, so I'm going to the appropriate amount of Dayquil right now where I'm like kind of loopy. I'm kind of here. But like it's all happening. You know, you feel, you feel good about that? You feel safe enough? Does this feel good? Yeah? Okay. And I'll kind of keep my energy low. If not, I'm not going to be running around and hooting and hollering like I normally do. Actually, I shouldn't promise that. I could probably still do that sitting. So we'll, we'll see. Uh, last week, we were in Wisconsin for my wife's family reunions. So there's about 40 of us. Um, and we're just hanging out. And there's 15 kids between 1 and 10. Talk about a good time. And my wife's family is just super sweet. Like, I married into, like, I hit the jackpot. I hit the lottery, marrying into just an incredible family. Uh, the way that they love one another, their kindness, their willingness to evolve. And we, like, live in different parts of the world. Uh, I don't know. We're, like, liberal coastal elites or whatever we call ourselves out here. Like, we just live in such a blue state. We don't even know that other things are existing in, like, Kansas. But they are people. Um, and so they have a different viewpoint than I do. We think different politically. We think different religiously. Uh, there are just certain things we don't talk about, but plenty that we do. But I really just walked away just feeling a ton of gratitude. Last Sunday, I'm sitting there, and they decided to do a church service, as my wife's family would do. Uh, in their family reunion, and I found myself over the years being too sophisticated for these things, too smart for these things, too cynical for these things. And I sat there this time with just incredible gratitude for who these people were, for the way that they saw God, for the way that they've just cared for one another, that I haven't really seen a lot of them for five years because of the fast, last family reunion and because of the timing of COVID. But even just thinking about all of the ways that God has just cared for this family. At the last family reunion, one of Carissa's cousins had cancer, and we didn't know it. She just was sick in bed all week long, and a week later found out that she had cancer and was able to get through it. Another aunt had breast cancer and was able to get through it. There's 40 people in the room. There's just plenty of stuff that's taken place. And they use a lot of language that I just don't use anymore. And I've challenged myself over the last year of about certain language where... I've been too good for it or too smart for it. But I'm like, oh, sometimes we use these phrases from the churches that we come from because they work. Sometimes we talk about God in certain ways because they work. And I have the ability to reclaim it in a way that works for me. But that doesn't mean I should throw all of the baby out with the bathwater. And the way that they sat there in this two-hour-long church service, by the way, uh, not too different than us, I guess, um, is we were just talking about the ways that God protected this family. And the language sat with me all week long. And someone had shared from a passage in 2 Kings, um, which we're going to get into today. And I'm just grateful for the ways that it sat with me. And I've been thinking about this idea of who God is. That in a community like New Abbey, I'm not interested in playing church. We're not having money conversations so that somehow staff can get richer and we can teach you to be better churchgoers on a Sunday. At the end of the day, the thing that I care about is that you learn to connect with God in new ways that your faith would expand and evolve, that your faith would work for you, that you would come to this place and that you would experience mutuality, that you would feel cared for and that you would find community, that the relationships here would change your life, 
That's what I care about, creating. That's what I see in my wife's family. That if something happens to somebody in that family, they are going to be there for one another. That is what I dream of for New Abbey. That when you don't have a job, you've got a network of people that you can reach out to and be like, man, we're going to help you with that resume. We're going to talk to you about that thing. When you're sick or you're going through something, you just couldn't imagine that that loss or that grief would take place in your life. That you've got a web of people that you know that they're there for you at every level. These are the things that I dream of. And as I dream of that, I never want to lose God. The weirdest thing that sometimes happens in liberal and progressive churches is we talk about all of these concepts of God, these things that we're letting go of. But at the end of the day, I don't want to lose who God is. And I want that to evolve and expand for you. But I want God to be something that you connect with in new and fresh ways. Not concepts of God, but God. I don't know what all of that means. I don't know how all that's going to specifically work out for you. But I just trust that God will provide in some way. So this big idea that I want to talk about today is that God protects and provides. I've not used language like that in like 12 years, so let's do this thing. If we're going to talk about God protecting and providing, we're going to talk about some things. I talked about the family reunion, then I'm going to talk about the exodus and the exile, and if that, OMG. And if OMG, then we talk about how we're overwhelmed and occupied, and if we can do that, then maybe we can think about what it means to not be afraid. And then the heiress tour, my friends, because we are in Los Angeles. If we can talk about the heirs tour for all my Swifties out there, then we can talk about kings and servants and prophets. And if we can do that, then maybe we can come back to this bigger idea of how God protects and provides. One of the things I found interesting in the world that I've grown up in, and I grew up conservative evangelical, and in conservative evangelicalism, the Bible is everything. In fact, the Bible is maybe bigger than God, interestingly enough. But the wild thing about evangelicalism is that most evangelicals don't actually know anything about the Bible, which is crazy. So there's this thing that we love, and what they don't realize is that in evangelicalism, evangelicalism is like 130 years old. This thing's not that, like the Cubs are older than evangelicalism. <laughs> and one of the things that evangelicals don't know is that you are the most powerful Christians that the world's ever seen. So we think as Americans that everybody's evangelical. They think the way that we think, but they don't actually think that. In the, in the world right now, less than 5% of Christians worldwide are actually evangelicals. That orthodoxy, as we would understand it, what scripture is as we understand it, has nothing to do with evangelicalism. That's a much more modern and recent version of who God is. It just happens we have all the money and we have all of the power, and we have the ability to print Bibles and send missionaries around the world. But what I've realized in that is that how do we do just a better job of understanding these really ancient stories? Like, I know I'm a pastor, but every week I'll sit there and I'll be like, does it blow your mind that these words are still here? That all of the empires of the world, all of these great people that you can think of, but at the end of the day, I am reading from prophets who lived 3,000 years ago. These Hebrew people who got their asses kicked by every world superpower that the world has ever seen. We are not sitting here today having a conversation and a worship service for Nebuchadnezzar or Julius Caesar. We are talking about this ancient text telling us about a different God. And this God doesn't serve the powerful, but this God cares for the oppressed in a different way. That this God sees the marginalized, that this God knows that if we can care for humans in the lowest place in humanity, then we'll be able to care for everybody. That the uniqueness, that the revolutionary nature of scriptures, of the faith that we profess is incredible. And I don't ever want to forget that. And so one of the things I, I realize sometimes is we don't even know our stories all the time. There's a nice voice crack there. That was beautiful. I just felt it happening to me in the day quote. If you want to know how the Bible works, particularly the Old Testament, you really need to understand the story of the Exodus. The story of the Exodus is a story of a bunch of marginalized people who were oppressed by Egypt. And this group of people were slaves for 400 years. They understand God 
through oppression and through suffering. That is not how evangelicals understand God. We understand God through power and through dominance and through God working things out for us. If you are a Jew, you do not see God that way. And just a little spoiler alert, Jesus was Jewish. So Jesus saw God. Jesus lived out God for us. Jesus showed us God and showed us humanity from a marginalized perspective, from being oppressed, from seeing life as the least of these. And that's helpful for us. That the story for the Jews is a story where God comes in and saves, rescues, and liberates them from bigger powers. It's a group of people who say, I have no ability on my own accord to get myself out of this situation. I have nothing else but God. And as Americans, that's not true for us. It's just not true for us. No matter how we want to play oppression Olympics, it's just not true for us in the United States. Most of us have the ability that a lot of people in the ancient world just didn't even have to find access and power and support. And so the Jews just have a different understanding of who God is, and they're much more comfortable with suffering than I think most of us are. And the story for the Jews is that God rescues them from these things. And then for most of us, there's Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Most of the time, if you've ever, like, an old school evangelical, and you're going to read through the entire Bible, and you got to, like, January 8th, and you're like, I can't do this anymore. This is, <laughs> this is honestly too much for me. Is that those are the stories where God is now saying, you were slaves for 400 years, and now you, you don't know how to live. There's many things you don't know how to do. And I want to teach you how to do this so that you would live a transformed and healed life so that you now, when you find power, and you have ability, you don't repeat the same patterns. I went to South Africa for a month in 2007, and one of the things that was going on in South Africa at the time is that there was a transition of power from the Afrikaners, who were Dutch reform white Christians, um, who had the land for hundreds of years in South Africa. And they were transferring a lot of that farmland over to black and colored Africans, which are two different things in South Africa. You can look that up later if you want to know what that means. And one of the difficult things is a lot of those Dutch Afrikaners did not want to pass on the knowledge about farming. So they were dooming them to fail. They were going to give them land but with no experience. And what I love about the story of Scripture is God is saying, it's one thing for you to be liberated. It's another thing for you to live as free. Freedom is something that you must practice. Freedom and maturity is something that you must grow in. And many of us in evangelicalism, this is not a picking on evangelicalism sort of day, by the way. It just kind of feels like that, but we're going to get past that really quickly here. Um, is that many of us got a version of God where we say the prayers, we raise our hands, and then everything gets fixed until it doesn't. And what we weren't taught is a faith that we have to grow in and mature in and practice in different ways. And so the story of Exodus is all about that God does rescue us, that God has to do God's part, that God has to protect and God has to provide, but then eventually we have to grow up and we have to mature. And then we eventually get, if you, live, if you live in the Old Testament long enough for the Hebrew Bible, you get to the exile. The exile is when all of the books of the Bible were really written. And most of us didn't know that story. So the exile is this period of time where there's two kingdoms. I know you guys are super excited about ancient history right now, so keep going with me. It's going to get even better. Is that there was the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, and the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom of Judah. And when they conquered these kingdoms, there's a cultural shift for the Jews. Imagine that your story is that God provides for you, protects for you, cares for you, stands up for you, does all the things for you, and now all of your understanding of God, all of the churches, your Bible, your temple, whatever your thing is, is now gone. What I love about the story of exiles is maybe the perfect story for people in Los Angeles or people that come to a place like New Abbey. You're probably exiles. There's probably a part of your story that started with construction, and this is how you understood God, and this is how God works, and this is what makes sense to you. And now maybe you've been out there in the wilderness or you've been in captivity in some way or you're living in a different world where you're like, I just don't know if it makes sense anymore. 
God made sense over there, but now that it's all been taken away and that I've deconstructed these things, and I started asking questions, and I remember it was 2011, and I read Rob Bell, and I'm like, is it really hell anymore? I mean, it's crazy out there, right? Or you had some moment where you just asked bigger questions, like, does the, does the puzzle fit together anymore? Well, you're not alone. 2,500 years ago in a place called Babylon, the Jews were asking the very same questions. How do I make sense of God now? That everything's gone, that everything's different. And the interesting thing about the Jews is that their faith wasn't lost. They begin to realize, oh, our faith is more robust and more interesting than ever. And that's what I hope for New Abbey, that your faiths are more interesting and more robust than ever, that you realize you're going to gain so much more than you ever lost, that many of those things that you've shedded, that you've lost, are worth shedding and worth losing. And that version of God over there who's angry and pathetic and, like, really frustrated at things and, like, whatever, it's not a very interesting God in the first place. But the story of God that the scriptures show us, the story of God that the Jews provide for us, the story of God that Jesus eventually lives into, I think is incredibly interesting for us. And it's interesting for us because it's not only a God who will liberate and free us and save us, it's also a God who wants to show us what maturity looks like, how to grow up, how to live this thing out so that faith actually works for our lives. So with that, I want you to follow along with me in 2 Kings chapter 6. And it goes like this. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel, so right now, this story of 2 Kings is being written while all of the people are in Babylon. And what the Israelites are doing, what the Jews are doing at the time, is they are writing down stories that they used to have, but they're writing them down to give hope for their current circumstances. So they had never written these things down before, and they're writing down all of their stories of faith because during the Babylonian captivity, the Babylons took all of the educated people with them to Babylon. So everyone who could write, everyone who could learn, everyone who could read, everyone could do all of those things, they went to Babylon. And these people said, if we're going to transform our faith, we better start writing this thing down because those stories are good over there and they actually mean something for us. And we need to see God in a new way because we've got a choice to make, just like everybody who's deconstructing. I can either just let go of that version of God over there, but then what's next? What am I actually reconstructing, rebuilding, taking up? And how am I going to see God in again in a way that actually works to my life? So they begin to write down these stories. And this is how we get books like 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles and 1 Kings and 2 Kings and all of the different books of the, of the Hebrew Bible. They're being written down in this time. And they're being written down through the lens of a bunch of people who are oppressed. A bunch of people who are currently in captivity. A bunch of people who have deconstructed. A bunch of people who have let go of the faith that they understood. And they're asking new questions about how they can make sense of faith in their current season of life. And so, now the king of Aram was, was at war with Israel, and after conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. Pretty sophisticated Hebrew there. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel. The man of God here is the prophet Elisha. Uh, the prophet Elisha and the prophet Elijah are two prophets in First and Second Kings, and they are people who come into the story, and they challenge power and authority. One of the beautiful things about the Bible is that the Bible doesn't agree with itself. Now, many of us, when we grew up in a different world, we were like, no, 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 all the Bible is equal and we have to make it fit together and this is perfectly and this shows the sovereignty of God. That's not true, by the way. That's not even true in Orthodox Christianity today. In Judaism today, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they're the most important books of the Bible and then all the other books are interpreted through that. Through most of Christian orthodoxy today, for the mainline denominations, for Catholicism, for the larger groups of Christianity, the Gospels take precedence over any of the other writings. And that's important for you to know. It's the lens in which you see everything else with. If you, like, start with Paul, you're just going to have some mommy issues. Like, it's just the way it's going to work out, right? Dude's got some issues and should have just gone to a therapist, and that's okay, right? But we start with Jesus for a reason. We start in the Torah for a reason. So a lot of us, we need to have a different perspective and different eyes to see what's actually going on in our faith stories. 
And so here the man of God, Elijah, sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God, Elisha, again. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on high ground in such places. What's going on in the story right now is that you got two kings who are going to war with one another in an ancient world. Two kings who are trying to figure out strategy and control for what's going on. And you have this prophet, Elisha, who is having a conversation with God. And Elisha is always kind of like spoiling things for the, for the king of Aram. Following along so far? Great. This enraged the king of Aram, and he summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? He's saying, how come they always know our plans? How come they always know what's going on even before we do it? And none of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel that the very words you speak in your bedroom. It's a way of saying God's working on their side in mysterious ways that we can't fully explain. We just know that it's kind of messing up some of our plans. Now, if you're Israel and you're in Babylon and you've been held captive for 70 years, these are pretty big words for you. If you're a place of deconstruction and figuring it out and what does God mean to you, maybe you need some stories where your mind is like, oh my gosh, could it be possible that God is still working in mysterious ways in my life? Could it be possible that I don't have all of the answers? Could it be possible that all of my sophistication in the two and a half Richard Rohr books I love, read and that one time I listened to Liturgy's podcast that there's more information out there for me than that? Could it be possible that my faith could actually work for me and there's a God out there who's still interested in me working out as well? So the story goes on, and it says, Go find out where he is, the king ordered, being Elisha, so I can send men and capture him. And the report came back that Elisha is in Dothan, and then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. And they went by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God, so the executive assistant for Elisha, got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do, the servants asked. I want you to put yourself in the situation again. You're a bunch of Babylonians. You're in captivity. You're like, I don't know how we're going to get out of this thing. I have no idea how God's going to make sense anymore in my life. And then you're writing down and rereading these stories of another time in your tradition and within your family history or within your narrative where God did show up and provide. But before you get to that part, where you're at now is like, I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be in my life and to be surrounded by something that feels overwhelming. I know what it's like to look out and feel like I have no idea how me, Corey, is going to get through these odds, how I'm going to survive this, how I'm going to escape this moment. And this is what's going on here. And I love that the Bible is honest with us because maybe you've been there. Maybe you've broken up in your relationship and you have had that moment where time just stops where like minutes feel like days, where the grief inside of you is just so overwhelming. Maybe you've been there in addiction and you just thought to yourself one day at a time, I don't know if I can get through this day. Maybe some of you have been there with grief or you've had that horrible news where a person you love is dying. This is what the story is trying to say. There's going to be moments in our lives where we feel overwhelmed. There's going to be moments in our lives where we feel surrounded and I don't know if I can get out of this. Two weeks ago was incredibly hard in my life. I had a friend, his wife was 23 weeks pregnant, and their baby was born very early, and the baby lived for 21 minutes. And they had 21 minutes to hold their kid. And they don't know how to process the grief. They just know that that's Isaac. And there's moments in your life where you're like, I don't, I don't know how we're going to get through this. My mentor, two weeks ago, texted and said she died last night. 
His wife, who's been fighting cancer for a year, is no longer here. It, it kills me in a different way because there's so much about my mentor and his wife that reminds me of me and my wife. And I couldn't imagine her not being here. I can't imagine what it's like for his grown kids when they're going to have Christmases and Thanksgiving and grandkids one day and Susan's not there anymore. And there's no good answer in those moments. I learned a long time ago as a young pastor, don't go give people things that are not helpful. Don't go tell them that God's got a plan for you. Go tell them that they, don't go tell them that God's going to work this out for you. It's okay just to say, I don't know why. I don't know why Isaac died. I don't know what happened to Susan. I don't have good answers for that. You might lose all your faith in this moment. You might beat your chest and yell to heaven just like Jesus and say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think it's such a human experience and a human response that you're completely surrounded. The odds are overwhelming, and I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And sometimes we just have to sit with it. Sit with the fear, sit with the grief, and sit with the unknown. The story goes on. And Elisha responds to the servant, don't be afraid. The prophet answered, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down towards him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike the army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. And Elisha told them, this is not the road, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. And after they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they can see. And then the Lord opened their eyes, and they looked, and they were inside Samaria. Just imagine that you're in captivity thousands of years ago. Imagine that you're just in one of those places that we just mentioned. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't have an answer for what's next. What the scriptures provide hope for is saying, what if? There's a God out there who just wants to protect and provide for you. What if there are times in your life where maybe not in the moment, maybe not even for years, maybe not even for decades, but there will come a time where you're going to see it all in a very different way. You're going to see the ways that God showed up. And I don't say that any of that in a trite way. I don't say any of that just to cover over things. I just know it to be true in my life. I can think back to 2008, and I had been married for two years, and I was young, and I was unfaithful, and I thought that I'd blown up my marriage. I gotta pause a second, because let's get to another story here in a second. I've been so wary of sharing stories like that, because another story that I'm gonna get to here in a little bit is that there are three times in my life that I can think of that just have just damaged me in ways that have taken years to get over. 2008, in my own unfaithfulness, and the ways that God provided in ways that I could have never imagined. 2012, going into 2013, when I started New Abbey, and I just couldn't have imagined what, I mean, the process was just depression and grief and all kinds of things, and then something that happened this year to me. And what I've realized is, like, I just, I've, I've lost trust where I share stories like that, because I share stories to be vulnerable, I share stories to be authentic, and I'm just scared that when I share stories that people use them against me. And in 2008, and that's terrifying for me to even say out loud. 
So in 2008, I sat on a corner in Glendora with my wife, and I remember telling her everything, and I remember her saying to me, I still want to be married, but if you do, but obviously something's got to change. Two months later, a church that I was volunteering at said that they want to hire me as a pastor, and I said, no, you don't. Let me tell you everything that I've done. They said, we still want to hire you, but we want to go through a process of restoration with you, and we want to figure out what that means. And I remember just thinking in my life, like, I don't deserve any of this. Every, she has every right to leave me. I'm a complete... I'm a complete asshole. And it was one of those moments when I look back years later to shape the trajectory of my life and how I see people. Because of that moment, there's something within me that's like gravity that when I see other people around me who are hurting and wounded and in pain and they think to themselves, I, there's no way that I'm going to get to live the life that I want to, I like run after those people. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And I run after those people because I just know that somebody gave me an opportunity, that there was a moment when God provided for me that I would have never imagined, and the least that I can do back in the world is try to provide for you in some way. And that was a moment for me that I would have never, ever imagined all that was around me and caring for me. In 2012, I left church of thousands of people, and I was a young teaching pastor, and everything was going my way, and I started to speak at camps and on circuits and all the things. You know, I was going to be some great man and write books, and next thing you know, I was going to be at Willow Creek. Let's go. But I left it all to start some quirky idea of a church called New Abbey where everybody was simply seen as made in the image of God. And for 18 months, I was depressed. Because there was like 12 people in my living room. And everything that I thought was God, I also just realized that I have all these insecurities on my self-worth and the way that I see myself. But every time I look at it in New Abbey, I'm just reminded of all the ways that God was surrounding me and protecting me, that there was chariots of fire. Use the metaphor, go with me there. Um, and God was doing things and providing in ways that I could never imagine. This last year, I had one of my board members just tell me, Corey, I know that you never imagined that you would be in this place. You never imagined that you could get through this. But I'm just going to say some words to you, and it's not going to make sense now, but one day it will. Would you just trust in God's provision? Not trust in your provision. Trust in God's provision. That it doesn't all add up, and it doesn't all make sense, and it feels so painful, and it's something you never imagine you can get through. But will you trust in God's provision in this moment? And that's where I'm at now. And when I look out at this room, that's what I hope for your lives as well. It may not all make sense, but is it possible that God wants to protect you and that God wants to provide for you? Is it possible that you may have new eyes to see your current circumstances, that years later you're going to look back and there's going to be opportunity for even this, even this, and that that is the good news. That is the story that we live into, that the story of Jesus is that in all of that suffering, in crucifixion, in death, in betrayal, in all of that pain, that even in that God could resurrect those things. In the things that you thought were dead, that they can't go anywhere, that they have no life, that there's impossibility, that that's where God does God's best work. That God loves showing up in God-forsaken places. You know how many queer people are in this church that you never thought to yourself that you could show up in a church and be full of yourself? That years ago when you didn't come out to your family because of all of the religious trauma and the pain or whatever, you're sitting here now. You probably thought to yourself, there's never going to be a church where I can have both my sexuality and my faith at the same time. And you do. You know how many women are in this place that you grew up in places and the most you were allowed to do is to have announcements on stage. And you're in a place where you're going to be fully yourself, all of who you are. It doesn't matter your racial identity. It doesn't matter your income. It doesn't matter if you don't even believe in Jesus, because some of you don't. We've had those conversations. You're welcome here, and you get to ask questions and doubt and figure it out. And the thing that I trust and believe over your life now is that God is there protecting you. And God is there providing for you. And how do I know that to be true? Because it's been true in my life. 
And what I love about the scriptures is they do not lie to you. They will also say, and sometimes you're going to be in captivity for like 70 years. <laughs> Talk about a good time. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you. If you go about 10 verses down, it says, but you're going to be in captivity for 70 years. It's not so much of a fun bumper sticker anymore. <laughs> the scriptures are being honest with you. God will protect and provide for you. And sometimes there's not always an answer for the suffering. But that doesn't mean we have to throw it all out. Maybe it's just an invitation for maturity. Maybe it's just an invitation for gratitude. Maybe it's just an invitation to support one another. So may you, new Abby, would you have new eyes to see that all around you are chariots of fire, that all around you is a God who wants to protect and provide for you, even in that, even now, even for them, even in all these situations, there is a God who will be there. And together we get to see new things and tell a bigger story. And I'm grateful that we get to do it together. May you go in peace. May you go in grace. Would you find those three or four people around you and would you answer this question? When and where have you seen God provide and or protect you? Enjoy. Enjoy.